right now I am grappling with the question of <coughs> the uh, well really what is the this there uh, are cosmic hubris that makes us feel so important about the universe and uh, our place within it and so what I'm trying to do experimentally is, is shed uh, some actual light on these extremely heated discussions that have taken over cosmology in the last few months with a debate about the uh, the deep past of cosmology and the implications for the future. So specifically what concerns me is can we actually drill down to the first moments, nanoseconds, microseconds, trillions of a second after the Big Bang? And if we do, is it really going to tell us something about the nature of the origin of the universe? Or is it merely tacking on decimal places onto you know, the, uh, the, the, the primordial collection of stamps. And my question is really one of bringing data. So Feynman used, used to, Feynman used to say uh, when people were waxing philosophic and having existential crises of faith about their equations, he used to say, shut up and calculate. And that meant to, um, to basically, you know, just it didn't matter what the implications are, what you were doing metaphysically, philosophically, and otherwise what mattered were uh, the answers that you got was the answer that you, that you got at the end of the calculation. For me, a lot of what my colleagues and I do is shut up and measure. We build equipment that you can't buy online, you can't order it off, off of the internet. So we, we go through <clears throat> and we have to design things from scratch to do a very specific purpose. But what I've noticed lately and what's of grave concern to me is that it seems as if many of the scientists, especially young scientists, are in a mode of thinking where we're trying to prove a theory. And that to me is a very dangerous aspect of science. Um, it's very intoxicating because you want to be inevitably associated with the brilliance of the, of the physicists that have created these ideas that are really speaking to the essence of uh, meaning as a human being. You know, how did it all begin? It's the most primitive question the human mind can ask. And so it's natural to want it associated with that. And further, it's natural to think that we live in the first time in the history of humanity in which it's possible to answer these questions using modern technology. So uh, back, in the, back in the late 1900s, they thought they understood the nature of the atom, uh, you know, perhaps that they were a little hubristic as well, thinking that everything that came after was, would be solved by Newton's equations and thermodynamics and electromagnetism, and lo and behold, there were many forces that they didn't perceive still yet to come. I feel like we're in that same phase right now. And furthermore, the thing that concerns me most is that we're always going to be in this state of thinking. We're always going to think that we're the last you know, generation uh, to, to you know, be perplexed by these fundamental questions of existence. Copernican questions. Are we central to the organization of the universe? So I've counted no less than, no fewer than five Copernican epochs. We thought we were the center of the solar system, the galaxy, the universe, um, and now the question comes down to are we the center of the multiverse? And that is an, a question we can unpack, but essentially it's a continuation of this question. And you see it also with this quest for other life on other planets. That's also a Copernican impulse that humans have to want to discover other planets, habitable planets, uh, habitable zones within our own solar system, on, on moons of other planets, uh, past life on other planets, and the implication is a Copernican one. Are we somehow special? Is life on Earth special? 
or is there a deeper you know organization that permits uh, you know the utter banality of life of which we're composed so that's a fascinating thing I think uh, that we're able to shed light on but I don't think in any case will it will be the last generation to wrestle with these questions <clears throat> so um, specifically what I'm doing is building technology to look at the light left over from the Big Bang which is called the cosmic microwave background radiation uh, it suffuses uh, all of all of the universe as far as we can tell it originates from a from an epoch about three minutes long after the the Big Bang so I always say it's uh, the actual formation of the elements which is called Big Bang nucleosynthesis that process lasted less than one-tenth of the TV show the Big Bang Theory so it's in, in that uh, time span, all the matter that matters, the matter that we're comprised of, the protons, the neutrons, the croutons, uh, everything else that matters to, to humanity was forged in that first three minutes. Um, and in so doing, the die was cast for uh, this all-pervasive radiation to, uh, to then propagate. And we use this radiation for the first time. Uh, we had an idea, uh, some colleagues and I, about 15 years ago to test the or if the origin of the universe if this fossil relic from the Big Bang called the cosmic microwave background radiation if we could use that as a film we know we can't go farther back in time than this so-called surface of last scattering when the Big Bang was was emitting this radiation field we call the CMB because that um, that fictitious that fictitious surface that epoch corresponds to a fictitious surface if you will so light is uh, is prevented from traveling to earlier times and more distant regions of space just as it is through a mirror you can't see through a mirror because it has electrons in it and electrons are highly mobile and they can reflect and scatter light back towards you so you can see your reflection but you can hear something behind a mirror right so you can you can see with sound you can see and my point is we're looking to see not with sound in the early universe to transcend this fictitious boundary, we're using waves of gravity. So gravitational waves are, have been known about. Actually, the, the person, the, young, the bright young theorist who predicted them, uh, you know, would be 150 years old. Now is Albert Einstein. He predicted them in 1916 as a consequence of the so-called general theory of relativity. That theory had as a consequence that any gravitational disturbance propagates at the speed of light, and that disturbance like all disturbances like water waves carries energy and momentum with it and in this case it was in the form of gravitational radiation we call that gravitational waves they were detected indirectly in the 1970s by uh, Holson Taylor who watched uh, a pair of pulsars slowly spinning down orbiting a common uh, barycenter and as they did so they emit gravitational waves just like a New Yorker as they shake their fist out the window will emit gravitational waves by virtue of mass in motion. So our idea was where did you have the most mass ever and where did you have that mass in such violent motion that it would produce tremendous amounts of gravitational waves and our answer was the Big Bang. But the question was did anything precede this epoch of the first three minutes? Was there anything, did it leave, are there any other relics left over from the Big Bang that were older than say the cosmic microwave background radiation photons that are older than the matter of which we're comprised. Uh, and physicists are greedy, you know, we, we don't, we're not content, oh, three minutes, you know, in most cases, you get three minutes out of 13.82 billion years, that's pretty good, right? But physicists don't think that way. We think logarithmically, we think in exponential terms. So 
the, the universe at 180 seconds is not nearly as interesting as the universe at one second, two orders of magnitude or younger, if you will. We think in logarithmic time. We want to go back, and if inflationary, this inflationary paradigm is correct, we want to go back to a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. So a decimal place, 35 zeros and a one, uh, approximately is the number of orders of magnitude we want to go back in time. So to give you an idea, uh, you, know, you're, you're, you know, if a person is 60 years old, they're roughly 2 billion seconds old. So 2 billion seconds in 60 years. Um, you know, Sean Carroll likes to talk about every, every lifetime has uh, something like 3 billion heartbeats. So that's like 90 years. So nine, nine, uh, that equates to billions of seconds. We want to go back, so that's 10 to the 10th. Let's call it 10 to the 10th seconds. We want to go back 46 magnitudes in time. <laughs> Uh, more, more early. We want to go back to a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second. So we're talking just a fantastically minute epoch after the Big Bang. And that corresponds to an epoch at which it might be possible to say that time can no longer be further subdivided. Um, if, there's, if, if there's a true fundamental quantum of time, it would be called the, the Planck time. The Planck time is only a few, maybe two orders of magnitude long, uh, shorter in duration than this epoch is. And what's incredibly exciting about this is if it's true that inflation happened and it has these properties that many theor my theoretical friends and colleagues suspect it does, then we're not only looking at, at the Big Bang, we're looking at the quantization of gravity. So gravity itself would be quantized. It's a goal that's uh, eluded mathematicians and physicists, Einstein included, uh, for, for the better part of the last hundred years. Gravity is the only force that persistently resists the quantization of it into fundamental particles, quanta, of energy, namely gravitational, you know, short wavelength gravitational waves or, or gravitons, what are called gravitons. So not only would we be doing cosmology, not only would we be doing quantum cosmology, we'd be doing experimental quantum cosmology. And this idea intoxicated me, you know, could we really probe this first epoch? The um, you know, I'm from New York, so I, I've got a natural neurotic uh, bent to myself, but I began to worry, you know, what if, what if inflation didn't happen? You know, is this a big, you know, wild goose chase, um, or as I like to say, wild goose chase? You know, what, we're, we're trying to pursue the signature predicted by essentially one or two men. And um, while it seems to match up with a lot of the evidence that we have, it's kind of like circumstantial evidence is not sufficient to convict. This would be, you know, a lot of people believe this would be the smoking gun. If we detect these waves of gravity via their imprint on the CMB's surface, this fictitious surface, um, then we would, they won't say prove inflation. And I, I think that's, that's, that's correct. You can't prove a theory. You can falsify alternatives to it. But what's really raging right now in cosmology is, is inflation a theory? Is it science? Is it falsifiable? And there are many eminent um, cosmologists, theoreticians from Roger Penrose, Paul Steinhardt, many others who assume, who are just as eminent as the physicists working on inflationary cosmology, who claim not only is it not provable, uh, it's not even science, because it cannot, in principle, be falsified. And what I've become very fascinated with uh, lately is why is falsifiability a criterion? Why is that? So, um, so sacrosanct to the physicist. 
I'm not saying that it's not, but right now it's become a cudgel. If I say to you, I can't falsify inflation, then you can say, well, then it's not a theory. But the person that, that first proposed falsifiability as a criterion was Karl Popper in the 1930s. And Karl was a uh, you know, German philosopher, mathematician, and he was deeply influenced at Princeton, and he was deeply influenced by uh, Gödel. <clears throat> Gödel had uh, his famous incompleteness th axiom uh, theory, which stated that certain aspects of a mathematical set of axioms can never be proven within the framework of those axioms. So it's somehow um, made to uh, constrain the, what is knowable in mathematics. And I claim that people have now thought that we need the same kind of thing, but for physical theories. In other words, we need a Gödel's incompleteness theory for experiments for theoretical science. Um, not, not, not that which can be proven purely by axioms, but by evidence. And my claim is that they use Popper, and I'm not taking a position at this moment, but I do want to point out the fact that physicists have this erotic obsession with Popperism, falsifiability, criterion, and uh, I want to question that because I don't know that it's necessarily a, a sufficient condition to rule something science or not. In fact, Popper himself, uh, he was a big proponent of the steady state model. And we, of course, you know, discarded that model long ago uh, for reasons that are, uh, that are important and that are actually rearing their head when it comes to the inflation versus multiverse versus steady state, you know, new modern steady state models um, that have come about from Penrose and Steinhardt and Turok and others. So it's interesting to me. People have this obsession with, with falsifiability. Uh, I claim that it's not necessarily so simple. You know, what Popper had in mind when he talked about falsifiability the pseudoscience he was railing against was Marx's thought. <laughs> it was the dialectic materialist thought of Marx. And he was railing against psychoanalysis of dreams by Freud. And he compared them both to astrology, which was so flexible that no combination of observations could falsify an astrological observation. You tell me you're a Pisces, and then I go and tell you what's going to happen to you tomorrow. You say, oh, you know what? I just realized I'm actually a Libra. Oh, well, actually the same things are going to happen to you. So so flexible, he felt it was total nonsense. And, um, and so it's interesting to me that you know, cosmology originated from astrology. I mean, we utilized all of the data from early astrologers to, to come up with our theory of astronomical um, positions of planets and other things. And now we're back to the same kind of falsifiability of astrology that's now basically bleeding over uh, into the, uh, the question of what is science? Is inflation science? And recently there was a, a petition signed by uh, 33 or so eminent, prominent physicists, uh, Lisa Randall, Max Tegmark, Alan Guth, uh, and then it included four Nobel Prize winners, Frank Wilczek and, and uh, John Mather. So it, so it had, it had uh, these incredibly eminent cosmologists responding to an article written by um, Paul Steinhardt, Anna Aegis, and, Neil, uh, and Avi Loeb. And the question of whether or not inflation is science, I think is a valid one. And somehow, um, you know, it's a little disappointing to see, you know, when people trot out, say, a Nobel Prize winners, and um, it's the appeal to authority. But I don't think in science where we pride ourselves, you know, David Kaiser is a friend of mine. He, he you know, he, he should know better. You know, we, we don't really care about authority in physics. Einstein was wrong many times. Galileo, the inventor of the scientific method, he, he, he was wrong on many fronts and made many mistakes. Doesn't take away from their brilliance, but uh, you know, 
having a petition in physics, I think uh, I, was, I was surprised about that, and, but it reveals the heat. And so what better to kind of take away the heat than to shed light using experiments? Can we, can we take a position using data? Uh, I think it was uh, Mark Twain who said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. I believe that was uh, him. And what's interesting, again, is that you know, each generation of cosmologists, while they accept things like the Copernican principle, and they accept that you know somehow humanity is is uh, is quite um, is is not in any way special, uh, and deny any any centrality to our location in time and space and in the universe. Nevertheless, each generation of cosmologists finds it within you know not within the bounds of their hubris to to claim that they are the ones that are going to explain how everything began. Whether it's the, um, the late 1800s epoch of, of the eternal universe that persisted from Aristotle, who I always like to say was essentially never right about anything that had to do with physics. Maybe he was right about philosophy, I don't know, I'll leave that to the philosophers. But uh, almost everything he said about physics, uh, bodies in motion, uh, to gravity, things falling at, at uh, different speeds depending on their mass, their weight, it was wrong. And he was wrong about the eternality of the universe as well. Nevertheless, it's a persistent illusion. Of course, you know, many people, Mario Livio wrote a book called you know, Brilliant Blunders, where he debunks the myth that Albert Einstein actually said that adding what we call dark energy, cosmological constant, to his equations of gravitational uh, general relativity, he called that his biggest blunder. It turns out that's apocryphal. But nevertheless, he believed so strongly that the universe was static and eternal that he actually didn't realize his equations were smarter than him. And this keeps on happening in cosmology. It happened again in the, in the, uh, in the 40s and 50s with the early um, steady state model uh, trying to grapple with evidence from Hubble. Hubble was a brilliant astronomer who, uh, who actually unknowingly repeated some of the arguments that Lemaitre, who is a, a Belgian priest, a Roman Catholic uh, uh, derivative uh, priest, had come up with this nature uh, notion that somehow space and time began from a primeval atom, he called it, which we call now the Big Bang. Uh, Lemaitre had this model where everything expanded and exploded due to a quantum fluctuation. This is in 1927. It's really, he was so prescient. He predicted the universe from nothing long before our friends, you know, Lawrence Krauss and others came up with, with similar, similar uh, ideas. Uh, that essentially a quantum fluctuation could cause the ultra-fast expansion of the universe from early times. There, was a couple pro there were a couple of problems. So <clears throat> Hubble's observations were not dispositive. There were many uh, uh, challenging what we call systematics. There were errors lurking in the data that didn't depend on, on Hubble himself or his telescope. It had to do with things in the universe that Hubble was unaware of. And in particular, you know, we consider this bit player dust, as I say, is not a bit player at all. It's actually one of the most important things that there is in the entirety of the universe. And it's the thing that's obscuring and, and challenging uh, the way that we attempt to study the ultra early universe and in inflation. Uh, what happened was uh, Hubble didn't realize that these galaxies were being obscured by dust. So he ascribed to them great distances. And, and great velocities in order to get there, receding away from every other galaxy at speeds um, we now know to be about seven times too big uh, using modern measurements. If, uh, if those were taken at face value, it implied that the universe was, uh, was younger than the objects within it. So as I always say, it's as embarrassing as finding your stepmother is, is, is younger than you are. 
Uh, and so what we ended up uh, learning from that was that there were flaws in the Big Bang, that it wasn't this cosmological savior by any means, that it had deep problems in it. And many eminent theorists and experimentalists grappled with this from the 60s and the 70s, even after the discovery of the microwave background. There's a uh, misperception that the discovery of the cosmic microwave background radiation that I study now, that that somehow just killed off any alternatives to the Big Bang and cemented and solidified the Big Bang. Uh, there are a number of problems with that. Uh, Steven Weinberg in his book, um, The First Three Minutes, and even his technical books on cosmology, uh, stated as late as the mid-70s that, that the steady state uh, had challenges but was philosophically more attractive in many regards, uh, most of all because it was the one that least resembled Genesis 1-1. In other words, it had no origin. It was, uh, it, it was as Copernican as you could possibly get. Not only was it Copernican in space, there's no particular specificity to our point and location in space, but in time, there's no beginning. If you have a beginning, that's the ultimate anti-Copernican. That means there's some special moment in time. So the steady state was very uh, attractive, seductive to cosmologists in the 70s. Um, and even as late as the, as the 80s, when, when Alan Guth was a young, uh, soon-to-be unemployed postdoc uh, working at Slack in, in Stanford, he uh, luckily had just heard a lecture by, by Bob Dickey, um, who was famously uh, scooped out of his Nobel Prize by Penzias and Wilson in 1965. Uh, uh, Dickey was actually looking for a signature of, the, of a hot thermal origin of the universe. He didn't call it the Big Bang. Um, he was looking uh, at a cyclic model of the universe, along with uh, Peebles and David Wilkinson, who's my grand PhD advisor. And they were looking at cyclic models, and as a consequence, there would be an early uh, epoch after the previous uh, cycle of the universe collapsed and condensed to very, very high, but not infinite density. And that would produce a thermal relic of the Big Bang that we discovered in 1965, Penzias and Wilson discovered, uh, called the CMB. That discovery did not kill the steady state. But in fact, it highlighted many problems with the Big Bang model. And into that uh, milieu arose uh, the, the, the physicists of the 70s were concerned with particles and fields, phase transitions, um, uh, unification of theories. And they developed models to unite models of the very small with the very big. Particle physics, cosmology, unified via field theories, unified via phase transitions. And Dickey and Peebles pointed out that there were certain aspects of the universe that made it too facund, if you will, for, for it to have uh, not had an underlying explanation. Um, Dickey said the universe is basically flat. It basically means it has, uh, within an order of magnitude, the amount of matter density that we now know it does, which is very strange. It's as if you throw a razor blade and it ends perfectly on its, on its, on its edge, uh, the edge if you will, and doesn't flip to one side or the other. It's highly unstable that the universe should have the exact curvature, we say technically, uh, and it's very unlikely. So out of an infinite, you know, there's an infinite number of real numbers between zero and infinity. Um, and yet the universe picked the number one. Let's just say in certain units it picked the number one, and it's 1.001 with as, big, as great a position as we'll ever get on it. So that the universe is flat is a known scientific fact. And yet, it's the most unstable. It's, it's, the, it's the razor's edge of, of possibilities. How did it get to be like that? How did it get to be so smooth and uniform in the universe, uh, excepting you know, local variations? Um, how did it get so smooth 
that, uh, uh, that structure was inhibited from forming. Galaxies couldn't form, stars, planets, people, uh, etc., could not form until just the right moment. And it seemed like a cop-out to say it was so that life could arise and so that we wouldn't be here asking the question of why is it so perfectly fit for life. So that was a mystery uh, to cosmologists. Uh, a young postdoc uh, named Alan Guth heard these mysteries and was deeply uh, uh, enervated by them. And he couldn't stop thinking about them. And when Alan was uh, almost you know, facing the, it was, it, was, it was a year after Penzias and Wilson collected their Nobel Prize in December of 1979. And he had been thinking about this lecture he heard by Dickey, uh, who had been scooped out of the Nobel Prize by Penzias and Wilson. So this, this remarkable synergy of, of events kind of revolving around cosmology's first Nobel Prize that really you know, may have influenced this, this young theorist facing the unemployment line to, to come up with this model. And I always like to think about it, you know, he's, he's a human being. I mean, he's a man, he's facing, he's got a kid, he's got a wife. You know, he's, he makes his living from his brain, and, you know, and, and this is his shot, and, and he's got to get something big, because otherwise he's going to be out of a job and out of the career that he loves, and that would be, uh, that would be a disaster. He comes up with, you know, the serendipitous discovery of inflation. One night he thinks if the universe was like, um, was like a bottle of champagne, it has bubbles trapped in it, the champagne bottle is corked, but when you release the cork, the bubbles all rush to the surface. They release their energy, their entropy, into one big bubble. The surface of the room is, uh, the air in the room is like a giant bubble. In doing so, the fluid cools off a little bit. And he thought, well, what if, these, what if there were bubbles of an heretofore unknown substance? He didn't speculate on what it was. He just said, if there was some field in the early universe, which is later called the inflaton, if there was some field in the universe, it could be uh, supercooled. And it could be like those bubbles that basically rise exponentially and grow in size exponentially. And in doing so, he would solve these two problems that Dickey had presented to him at a lecture um, the year before. And it was, they were called the flatness problem. Why is the universe balanced on the razor's edge? Uh, a perfectly f you know, flat universe. Uh, you know, we're here in New York City. Uh, the famous New Yorker cartoon shows New York is basically a flat surface. Uh, the whole world is centered on us here. Uh, but reality showed that the universe was like that. So it wasn't just New Yorkers that could have such an egoistic uh, interpretation. Um, why was that? Inflation. The universe expanded such that even if it was highly curved from Lemaitre's primordial atom, primeval atom, it could inflate to, to scales bigger than the observable radius of curvature of the universe. The universe would be flat in inflation. And furthermore, uh, the horizon problem. It's called the horizon problem. Why, when I look in that direction back to the beginning of time, back to 13 you know, billion, 0.82 billion uh, years ago, and I look in that region of the sky, 180 degrees away, they have the same temperature. They have the exact same temperature, and for all we know, the exact same physical properties. We are connected to each one of them by the age of the universe times the speed of light, and expansion factors, we'll ignore those, but they've never been in contact with each other. How can they possibly have dialed their thermostats to within a fraction of a, of a thousandth of a degree Kelvin? It's impossible. It, the conspiracy required is much greater than any man-made conspiracy you could possibly think of. But inflation explains it. At the beginning, there was a primeval atom. Lemaitre was absolutely correct. How it got there, what happened beforehand, Guth said, I do not know, but it doesn't matter. He actually says, it doesn't matter how it got there. Inflation is insensitive to what preceded the epoch of the supercooled, superfluid, uh, supercooled state. Expansion takes place, blows everything up. But in doing so, it would have laid the seeds 
for the slight deformations in matter and energy, um, there was one problem. If the process was so, uh, so effective at expansion, you couldn't put the cork back in the champagne. And he realized this, and he gave a talk, um, I believe in the Boston area, and there was another young you know, postdoc in the audience, you know, listening uh, to this brilliant you know, theorist who got incredibly depressed, and it was Paul Steinhardt. So Paul Steinhardt was sitting in the audience in 1980, <clears throat> and he heard Alan Guth speak, and it was a year before Guth actually, it took almost two years for Guth to publish his paper on inflation, on the spectacular realization, he called it, that he had one night in his, um, at, at Slack in, in Palo Alto. He, um, he took a year and a half to publish his paper. He was going around on a lecture tour himself, uh, and he ended up getting a job at MIT, and that's where Paul Steinhardt heard about this. And Paul told me recently uh, that it was the most um, exciting and depressing talk he'd ever heard, and it drove him equally mad almost, that he, he thought the idea was so beautiful that he, it couldn't be abandoned. And whereas Guth was, was sort of trained on the high energy physics side of the spectrum, Paul had great knowledge and facility with condensed matter, the physics that traffics in phase transitions, in fluids, in bubbles, and, and um, these condensed matter forms of, 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 of energy. So Paul was just the right guy. You know, you look back and, you know, history makes sense. Um, you know, Kierkegaard said, you know, life must be lived forward, but it only makes sense in reverse. And looking back, these people from Dickey to Guth to Steinhardt, it, you couldn't have had a more perfect arrangement of people. How Linde, you know, like brilliantly did all the, you know, I mean, Russians you know, are, are so creative, they can do whatever, you know, with, with a piece of paper and a pencil. Um, so, so Linde, you know, really stands out for, on his own. But that Guth and, and, and Steinhardt and Dickey were all around each other in this period of about a year and a half, and that that laid the seeds, literally and figuratively, for what would become the model that I'm testing you know, uh, 37 years later, and really trying to, to, to falsify um, whether or not inflation took place. Can it be falsified? Is it scientific even? According to, what's ironic is that the people that create these models that made, you know, arguably Paul Steinhardt made, you know, equal contributions to the theory of inflation. I always say to Paul, you know, Paul is the father, one of the fathers of inflation, but he's the one of the three that's denying paternity. I mean, he basically, uh, uh, believes that, that not only is inflation incorrect, but it has fatal flaws that essentially via the incontrovertible existence of, uh, uh, of the multiverse within inflation, within eternal chaotic inflation of Linde, um, <clears throat> and Paul also grappled with this problem, that actually Goose's original problem still persists. Inflation is so um, explosively efficient it cannot be shut off. You can't even put the cork back in. The universe should still be creating, uh, the multiverse should be creating more and more universes. This, this scalar field called the inflaton uh, is, is impossible to turn off. I would say it's like the, um, a, a rocket. Uh, once you ignite a solid rocket, you're, it's over. You can't turn it off. It keeps burning and accelerating and, and there's nothing you can do to shut it off. No quenching can, can be had for it. So too with inflation. And what's scary about that is it means that there's not just you know one other set of uh, of interviews going on just like this one. There's an infinite number of interviews just like this one going on, and there's an infinite number of universes exactly like our universe. There's an infinite number of universes where the speed of light is one mile per second slower than it is in our universe. There's an in and and um, 
the likelihood of those universes it might be very small, but the fact that you know infinity, as Woody Allen said, is a is a pretty big long time to wait, especially towards the end, right? So so there aren't there aren't really um, many positives to come out of it. It's kind of the ultimate Copernican principle. Steinhardt, Steinhardt basically uh, reduced the neurosis that, that Guth had. He, he found a way, a graceful exit to the inflaton uh, problem, how it could create a cold universe at the very beginning that would have the properties that could then be reheated to create particles and energy. So what was interesting is that Paul's um, early corrections with his student Andre Al Albrecht, Andy Albrecht, um, when they corrected or made modifications to this model of inflation, it became known as new inflation. And with their help, they, and Hawking and others, they actually made the first prediction. So what Guth had done was a retrodiction. He explained problems of the Big Bang model uh, that were known to exist. Just like Einstein explained these anomalies of mercury that were known to exist with general relativity. At first, it was a retrodiction. But then Einstein predicted gravitational lensing and, and the rest is history and he became you know, somewhat famous. You may have heard of him. Um, so too with Steinhardt and Hawking and others. They predicted, they had predictions that there'd be unavoidable quantum jitters of this inflaton field, which would make the universe expand a little bit over there, a little more over here, a little less over here. And that signature was first observed in 1992 by the Kobe satellite. So the Kobe satellite was a very large team. It was uh, the, the PI of, of one of the instruments was named uh, George Smoot, is named George Smoot. And the other instrument, um, which found the spectrum of the CMB to be very accurate, which in my mind uh, was the nail in the coffin for the steady state model, at least at that time, was John Mather. So um, they, uh, the Kobe satellite did two things. It really firmly established that there was a Big Bang and it showed for the first time that there were, the universe had this tiny inhomogeneities that Isaac Newton had recognized needed to be there 400 years earlier. In other words, if the universe is homogeneous, everywhere the same, isotropic looks everywhere the same, then why should New York form here and not you know, where Kansas is? Why would there be something special about where our galaxy formed? You can't have it. You can't have it. It's, it's asking for too much. So Newton realized you need something to break the symmetry. Kobe found that symmetry was broken. So uh, George Smoot famously said, you know, if you're religious at the press conference announcing it, it's like seeing the face of God. Uh, I claim uh, that that was a little bit premature because what he was really saying was that uh, we have found evidence for inflation. That's the subtext of what he meant, what Smoot meant. And yet, um, and yet there are many models besides inflation that predict fluctuations in the CMB, just like Kobe uh, would would observe using uh, Smoot and others instruments, so it wasn't it wasn't the smoking gun, it was the heat. The gun was hot, <laughs> the gun was you know found the habeas corpus whatever. But there wasn't we didn't see the actual culprit. We didn't see the trigger man, and the trigger man really uh, is something that came out of a consequence of of um, uh, what uh, Starobinsky and Abbott and and Mark Wise and others predicted. Uh, along with um, <clears throat> a Russian physicist named Alex Polnareff, that there would be gravitational radiation, that this jittery inflaton that Steinhardt and others had proposed would lead to not only waves of matter density, where dark matter and ordinary matter would pool together and make stars, galaxies, planets, people, etc., but uh, there'd be jittering in space-time's fabric called gravitational waves. These gravitational waves propagate at the speed of light, they last forever, 
they go through all matter, right? They go through the entire Earth. LIGO showed that you can have a gravitational wave come in, enter, you know, not at Nepal, as John Updike said, but enter at, uh, say, Washington State and go all the way through to Louisiana. Beautiful, right? So, so they go through any matter, any energy. They're the perfect messengers of the inflationary epoch. They can go back to a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second because that's when the quantum jittering of space-time was encoded. If space-time is a bell, that's when the bell was rung. Unfortunately, you can't do that with Kobe. Kobe could see that there are fluctuations, but if you will, it could not understand if those fluctuations were uniquely coming from inflation. Even the anti-inflationists, the Paul Steinharts, the Roger Penroses, they admit that their theories, either conformal cyclic cosmology in the case of Roger Penrose, or the uh, cyclic models, bouncing cosmological models of Paul Steinhardt, Neil Turok, and others, if gravitational waves are, are proven to, to exist unequivocally without, without exception from inflation, or from uh, in the CMB's polarization, which is what I study, then their model is wrong. It's, they still are not convinced that inflation is provable. In other words, it will falsify a model, just like Mather falsified the steady state model, if you will, not Mather himself. Of course, it's always a group of people. Uh, I'm just using Mather as a shorthand for Kobe's um, derby, um, uh, fire ass instrument. That falsified really the last hope of the steady state. So too, detections of gravitational waves will falsify the modern incarnation of the steady state, which is a cyclic universe. A universe could be infinite in time, and we know that can't be the case thanks to the work of Mather and others. We know it has to have perturbations in it, thanks to Smoot and others. But it could be cyclic. It could be a universe that, that lives and dies like a phoenix and explodes and, and re reincarnates itself. Or it could, be, um, it could be infinite in space, where there's a universe parallel to ours over here and over there. There could be um, deep connections with, with, with um, uh, string theory and brains and so forth and the ekpyrotic model. Um, but all these things are, are models, and my claim is that you, you, if, you, if you believe that falsifiability is a criterion of modern science, uh, which Paul and others do believe, that that is unscientific to do science without falsifiability, um, they claim if we don't detect gravitational waves, we'll, we'll still adhere to the predictions of inflation. So they almost ascribe a cult-like following to inflation, which you know, is a position, and again, I go back to Feynman's dictum, modified for experimentalists, shut up and measure. That's what I want to do. Mm. What, uh, what is fascinating to me is that we are now um, hoping with modern measurements to probe the early universe, and in doing so, we're now encountering both quite deep questions about the scientific method itself and questions about what is fundamental into physics. So when we look out on the universe, we're necessarily looking through this dirty window, literally a dusty window. We look out through dust in our galaxy, and what is that dust? That dust is the, uh, if you like, <clears throat> I like to call them like nanoplanets. They're little tiny grains of iron and carbon and silicon and all these things that are the matter of our solar system. They're the very matter that Galileo was looking through when he first glimpsed the Pleiades and he glimpsed uh, stars beyond the Milky Way for the first, beyond the solar system for the first time. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so we look through a universe dusty, dustily. Uh, when we look out, our telescopes never see just what, you, what you're looking for. We have to contend with everything in the foreground. And thank goodness for that dust in the foreground, for without it, we would not be here. 
Literally, that dust makes up our solar system. In the steady state model, that dust made up the CMB. That was the origin of the CMB that Mather and, and all were able to falsify. Nowadays, we know that we have to look through this dusty window and be more clever than nature. And we need to devise an experiment that not only sees back to the Big Bang and beyond, uh, to the very earliest epochs after the Big Bang, rather, the real spark. I mean, people like Max Tegmark say, we really shouldn't call inflation you know, a separate from the Big Bang because it's really the, the fuel that powers the Big Bang. It's really the Big Bang itself. And you know, people argue about that. I call it the spark that ignited the Big Bang. So it's sort of what, because what happened before the Big Bang? It used to be, Hawking used to say, asking what happened before the Big Bang is as meaningless as asking what happens when you go north of the North Pole. It's a question that has no meaning. But it has a very good meaning in the cyclic universe. It has a very good meaning in the, in the, um, in the conformal cosmology of Penrose. And it has a very good meaning even in the multiverse models of inflation. So, you know, so with apologies to Stephen, it's not actually correct that that question is meaningless. It has a good meaning, uh, but it depends on the cosmological underlying model. What I care about is how are we going to get rid of this dust? And what most people don't appreciate is that the instruments that we build are so sensitive, we can measure the heat, you know, essentially the heat of a match sitting on the moon. Um, and we can measure the properties of gravitational waves propagating from billions of light years away. Um, but what we can't do is we can't build an experiment that's outside of our Milky Way. We'd like to. We'd you know, I tried putting in funding to do that. You know, NASA's not too willing to do that, right? Because it's, it's a technological impossibility. It's like building a gravitational, a part, an uh, LHC, a particle collider bigger than our solar system to probe the energies that we're looking at, or as big as our solar system. So how do we make progress? We are dealing with contaminants that are not instrumental, they're not psychological, they're not theoretical, they're actually inherent in the cosmos. They're astrophysics at work. We have to build another experiment that operates in parallel that just measures this contaminant. From that, we can remove it and we can listen to these waves of gravity potentially. What's interesting to me is that eventually we're gonna hit a floor and I kinda hope that we hit it. And that floor is one where both the model of inflation and the models of anti-inflation, the Guth and Penrose, uh, the Steinhardt and, and Penrose and others, uh, will have an unavoidable bedrock of, of, of space-time's ringing that can never be removed. And if we hit that, and until we hit that, we can't really make much progress. What I want to do, um, we, can't, we can't say for sure if the universe had inflation or not, if that bedrock is hit without seeing waves of gravity. So that would be fascinating. That would basically mean that, uh, that all bets are off, that we will never, with the tools that we have, be able to falsify these alternatives to inflation. Um, and uh, that day is, is a ways off in the future. And again, I don't want to say we're the last generation of cosmologists to be able to answer this question, because we're not. There's, cosmology will continue to ask questions We'll continue to make this Copernican uh, conjecture that we are not central to the universe, and there'll continue to be an infinite number of such questions to be asked. Well, there, there's something that's very, um, it's cute, because Galileo, again, is credited with the origination of the modern scientific method. When people talk about method of hypothesis, um, you know, apparatus, hypothesis testing, iteration, that loop was really pioneered by Galileo. What's, uh, what's so cute to find out in, in, in looking at this is that Galileo was, was a human being. 
and there's no such thing as a scientist who's not a human being, not yet, maybe not ever. He had biases of exactly the type that the scientific method is designed to exclude and preclude, namely confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is this urge that humans have to discard evidence that don't agree with their hypotheses. So what were Galileo's biggest blunders? I like to say, you know, Einstein is famous for his biggest blunder. You know, Mario Livio claims it wasn't true and it was apocryphal and Gamov made that up. Um, <clears throat> he never said that. But nevertheless, let's just, it's a cute little term to think about. What was Galileo's biggest blunder? Well, many people say it was his theory of the tides. Galileo said the tides on Earth are caused not by the moon as we know them to be now, but because the Earth is rotating and it's going around the sun. And the combination of rotation and revolution, which he had only recently motivated the evidence for, um, didn't prove, by the way, but motivated that the Earth is not the only center of the solar system. That was effectively what his observations of Jupiter's satellites showed. Many centers of, of the solar system, the Earth is not unique. You can't prove the Copernican principle. You can only show it's not. Um, other things are falsified. He said the Earth is going around the sun and the Earth is rotating and the sloshing of water makes tides. We now know that's completely incorrect. It's because of the interaction of the moon. <clears throat> he said one other thing that was incorrect. He said if you look up at the night sky, you see a constellation fragment called the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters, Japanese called Subaru. Um, it's a little cluster of seven stars. He said his telescope looked at it, beautiful sketches that he did in, in the Starry Messenger, his famous first book self-published, you know, uh, copy without peer review, I always say. But he looked at it and he said all the nebulosity, which we now call cloudiness and nebulosity, he said that's just because there are stars there that my telescope can't resolve. And that's all it is. Uh, if I had a bigger telescope, I'd resolve it into tiny stars. Um, we now know that, the, and so he was really trying to say that every star, that the Milky Way is basically made up of stars like our sun, another nail in the anti-Copernican model. In other words, he was driven by this bias to confirm the Copernican universe at all costs. He claimed that he, when he looked at uh, the Orion Nebula, that he, uh, the exact same thing happened. And scientists, Owen Gingrich and others, now claim that he actually, he knew that really you couldn't magnify it to find stars, but he really wanted to see what it was. And he claimed it was evidence for basically what we'd say now, the Copernican model. Um, so he had a bias. What was it that he was looking at? We now know it was dust. So he was looking through a dusty universe too. He was using the first telescope to be used for astronomy, looking at dust and seeing its mirage. We cosmologists are now just doing that just the same. Are we immune from the same confirmation biases? Do people that have a theory of inflation or anti-inflation, do they not have uh, urges as humans to know the answer within their lifetimes? Uh, I think it gives people meaning and scientists, as long as they're people, will continue to have to grapple with this.